Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Today we are rebroadcasting a show that we did earlier this year in June with Professor Paul Steinhardt of Princeton University. And we're doing it because it is it discusses a very important topic, which is the inflationary Big Bang. It sounds like maybe a esoteric topic, but on the other hand, it's a leading theory of how our universe began. And the show is important, and Paul Steinhardt really does a great job in this show because we see that modern science itself is struggling with the fine-tuning of the universe. The inflationary Big Bang was created in order to deal with some apparent fine-tuning of the universe, specifically the fact that the critical mass of the universe is just precisely the right amount to ensure a flat universe. Which sounds all fine and good, but a flat universe is, is in fact, the most unlikely of all universes. It's a universe where the density of matter exactly balances the gravitational energy of the universe. It's a weird kind of balance. And so the inflationary universe was created in order to deal with this perfect balance of two seemingly independent forces. But then again, a problem arises with the inflationary Big Bang. As we learn on this show, the inflationary Big Bang, this inflation that was created in order to smooth out the universe, is itself finely tuned. They haven't solved the fine-tuning problem. They've actually magnified it. Let's learn more in this show. Now, the purpose of this show is to explore the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, to bring the big questions down to Earth. On today's show, we are going to confront a very big question, which is, how did it all begin? Now, if you ask most people this question, a good proportion of them would say, well, it began with the Big Bang, and then we probably have a a large number of other people who said who would say something like well God did it read the book of Genesis but with regard to the scientific explanation the leading theory of how it all began is called the Big Bang but it turns out I think that almost the same number of people who would answer the question the, the Big Bang started all would also say that they don't understand what the Big Bang is we tend to rely upon experts in this field to answer questions like how it all began, in part because the questions are technical, deep, and require a lot of education. So we, so we accept the, the answers from the professors, and we file them away, and we simply do not delve deeper. Today, however, we are going to delve, delve deeper, and we're lucky to have as our guest an expert in 
the area of the Big Bang, and specifically the inflationary Big Bang, which is the topic of the show. Our guest today is Paul Steinhardt. Now, Paul Steinhardt is the Albert Einstein Professor of Science at Princeton University and a professor of theoretical physics. He received his Bachelor's of Science at the California Institute of Technology and his Ph.D. in physics at Harvard. He is currently the director of the Princeton Center for Theoretical Science. He's a member of the National Academy of Science and received the Paul Dirac Award from the International Center for Theoretical Physics in 2002 for his contribution to inflationary theory. Now, for today's show, it's also important to put into our background context that Paul Steinhardt is the author of two significant articles on the inflationary theory published in Scientific American over the past 27 years. One article is entitled The Inflationary Big Bang, which was published in the May 1984 issue of Scientific American. Now, Paul co-authored this article with Alan Guth, who's widely considered to be the originator of the inflationary Big Bang model. The second article Professor Steinhardt published 27 years later in the April 2011 edition of Scientific American, and this article is entitled The Inflation Debate is the theory at the heart of modern cosmology deeply flawed. Professor Steinhardt is also the author of a book called Endless Universe Beyond the Big Bang that he co-wrote with Neil Turok, which is available, I'm sure, nationwide and also on Amazon.com. Welcome to the show, Professor. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's, let's, let's start in the beginning. What is the Big Bang Theory? Okay. Um, well, the Big Bang Theory, if you were to ask most physicists and cosmologists and astrophysicists, is simply the idea that the universe has been expanding and cooling over time. So that going back in time, the universe was hotter and denser, and going f uh, forward in time, it's been uh, expanding and cooling. And as it's, that's been happening, as the temperature of the universe has been changing, it's been going through different stages of evolution, uh, beginning with a stage where it was very hot, so hot that it was boiled into its elemental constituents, and then those constituents formed the first nuclei, first atoms, first molecules, later on the first stars and galaxies, and, and here we are 13.7 billion years later during this process. So that's the essence of the Big Bang Theory. Now, now I, I need to ask you, with regard to the Big Bang Theory, what I read is appears to be two schools of thought with regard to this whole creation question. And, and I don't, and, and this is not... This is just something to, to see where you, where you sit on this question, which is some folks, and, and, I, and I think you said in your, in your original 1984 article, say that the Big Bang is really a, th a theory that goes back to what the, the, the Planck's time or the first 10 to the minus 45th second or some, some period just after the the what some people would call creation then there's some folks and i think lawrence krauss and there's a bunch of other people uh, now who are f who are following this quantum fluctuation approach where they think that they could unwind uh the the theory of the big bang all the way back to what some people would call nothing 
So, so are are you are you of the school of thought that that the Big Bang is really the the story of the universe when this first mystery after his first mysterious appearance of matter and energy appears, or are you of the of the, of the Lawrence Krauss crowd, or are you neither of them? That's a very good question, because there's a lot of confusion when you ask scientists about the Big Bang Theory. They often, mean some, they often respond to that question, what, what do you think about that theory, uh, um, uh, in a way that um, doesn't, uh, when, they answer, when they respond to that question, they're not, they don't have in mind the same thing as the question that most people are asking. So most people are asking about the moment of creation, whereas if you... Uh, when you asked when you asked me the question, I very carefully defined the theory. I didn't mention anything about the beginning. Right. So I mentioned the idea that the universe was once hotter and denser and has been expanding and cooling. Uh, that's the part of the theory which is under very good control in the sense that um, uh, we have overwhelmingly redundant tests of that idea, that it was once hotter and has been cooling, hotter and denser and has been cooling. And the physics, the physical the equations that describe that process for a long period, you know, going back quite a ways, you know, are under very good control, uh, overwhelmingly tested and confirmed. But when you stretch it back to the point, uh, when you stretch things back farther and farther, using the same equations, going beyond what you can actually observationally test, you eventually reach a point where the equations would tell you that the temperature and density become infinite. This is what people refer to as the Big Bang, or if they think about a creation moment, this would be the moment of creation. Right. But now we're pushing the theory or the equations back to a realm where we have no reason to trust them. We don't have independent evidence that they should be trusted. In fact, we're pretty sure that due to the effects of quantum physics that they are going to have to be significant modifications. At this point, there's rooms for doubt, question, and alternative theories. And a lot of the interest and moment in cosmology is in exploring different alternative ideas of what might have occurred then. Was it truly a beginning, an emergence from some sort of quantum beginning, or could it be something else? Could there have been a bounce in some sort of pre-Big Bang phase? Both those ideas are very much alive at present. That part we're less sure of. So if you ask you, a physicist or astrophysicist, do you believe in the Big Bang Theory, they'll immediately respond yes, because they have in mind this idea of expansion and cooling. But what the audience usually means is, do you believe there was this moment of creation? And if you ask them that question point blank, you'll usually get most scientists saying, well, I might have my favorite idea, but there, but there there's room for, for alternatives. Yes, yes. I know in your original uh, 1984 article, which, by the way, for those listening, is also published in a Scientific American book called Particle Physics in the Cosmos, and I'm sure it's been published all over the place, uh, Professor, as, as you know more than I do. But in any event, this, this, uh, in, in your article you say, uh, you say, for example, the instant of creation remains unexplained. Uh, and and I and I and so that's where I thought, that's where I thought you were you were heading. And, and, and what you and what you just said reinforces my my belief that again the Big Bang is really a th- a theory that takes that takes science from this primordial beginning almost almost at the beginning of of it all. But but when but if you rewind the film to point zero. 
there's there's mystery there. Is is that is that yes? And, and you can think you can think of it as very analogous to trying to understand the evolution of life. Okay. So we observe life at present. We have fossil evidence of what it was like in the past. And using that evidence, we're able to build up a clearer and clearer picture of that evolutionary story. Right. But if you ask exactly how life originated, there there's lots of room for speculation because there we don't have the, you know, direct observational evidence or experimental evidence to answer the question. In a similar way, we should think of us as building the story of the history of the universe backwards in time and using, first of all, nearby observations and intermediate observations and then more distant observations, uh, which give us information about the universe at different time periods because the light had to be emitted at different times to get to us. Um, We're able to then reconstruct the history of the universe going farther and farther back in time but there reaches a limit to that, and then, and then beyond that, you, uh, there's now room for alternative possibilities. Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite uh, descriptions of this issue is in George Gamow's little book called The Creation of the Universe, which somehow I managed to get an original version of that book, probably to use bookstore somewhere, but uh, when that book came out, he, in, the, in the second edition, he mentions that that he got some criticism from some theologians or some from some um, religious folks about the use of the word creation in the title and he, and and in the note to the second edition he says something like what he meant from from the from the use of the word creation was something like a fashion designer making a a, a fashion out of cloth that he that he wasn't describing where the cloth came from it was it was something like that and and mm-hmm. and, and George Gamow by the way for those I think he had a lot to do with the original Big Bang is that right that's Professor? right I mean I'm not sure whether he so was... so so the founders so interestingly enough the founders of the Big Bang theory in the 20s 30s and 40s uh, so George Gamow um, uh, Alexei uh, Alexander Friedman, uh, Georges Lemaitre, these are the people who, who put it on its feet. They were all quite open or, uh, about the idea of what actually happened at the beginning. They didn't have this idea of a creation moment. They were pretty sure they would be substituted by something else. Yes. The idea of the crea- that it was a creation moment it was an idea that was added to the theory more in the 50s and 60s, right. uh, essentially because of debates about steady state versus the Big Bang model. Yes. Um, one of the strong opponents to the Big Bang model, uh, Fred Hoyle, uh, is the person who gave the theory, in fact, its name, Big Bang. Right. And one of the things he tried to do in those debates was sort of push the theory into a corner, which it was the idea that there would have to be this moment of creation, which he thought was a, an unattractive feature right. of the theory. A beginning of time was an unattractive feature, and it's still something that disturbs us and we're still uncertain about. Uh, but it was not there in the model to begin with. Most uh, the founders had, the, you know, quite open to the idea that something else might have preceded it. And George, in that quote from George Gamow, is an example of that. Yeah, and and I like to closely read, and I would recommend it that the folks that read books or articles on this topic closely read what the authors are saying, because the way, and this is this is just me, but the way some books are are marketed they want people to buy the book and for example on my bookshelf I have another book called the moment of creation well it really isn't the moment of creation it's really the moment 
after creation. <laughs> it's really the moment yeah. right after creation. And and it, there's nothing wrong with somebody coming up with a theory of, of how something came from nothing. I mean, I don't fault Lawrence Krauss for for give, for trying that and others. Um, I think Edward Triton, Tryon, whatever whatever his name was. Um, you know, try their hand at that. But I think it's important to distinguish between what science is really saying they know and where the mystery remains. And and that I think is 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 very important for sort of knowing um, what the state of our current knowledge is, and not not to mislead the public into thinking that you know science has solved it all. Because because I because we all know that science is not solved at all, and 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 you know and, the, and that the scientific quest is continuing. So let's let's now so so we have the big picture. We have the Big Bang. Now there are certain problems with the original Big Bang model. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, as of, as originally conceived, the idea was that the universe would somehow begin, or well. Somehow there would be a beginning or some, something that would, that would create a state of the universe initially, um, that um, uh, the universe would contain just the matter and radiation that we observe, and it would be expanding and cooling under the influence of gravity uh, from then to the present time. And, and so that simple idea explains many of the observed features of the universe, but some features of the universe look quite special from that point of view and hard to explain and puzzling. So, for example, one of the things that uh, you might expect is if the universe really did emerge in a sudden quantum event, a sudden uh, rapid uh, creation event, that it would be completely out of control, uh, very uneven, very uneven distribution of matter and energy. Uh, space itself, according to general relativity, is elastic. So you might expect it would begin highly wrinkled and curved, if you can uh, imagine space being cur uh, wrinkled and curved. Um, and uh, then if all that happened to the universe is that it, it slowly expanded and cooled, what you would you, you'd find is that observing the universe today, you should see uh, out into this region which is highly uneven and highly curved and warped. But what we actually observe is the opposite. We observe that the universe is remarkably uniform, that when we measure the average physical properties on one side of the universe or on the other side of the universe, they're the same to a very high degree of accuracy. Uh, if you look, for example, from the radiation formed when the first atoms were forming, what we call the cosmic microwave background, we find the variations in temperature when you look all around the sky are only... Uh, a few parts in a hundred thousand. So a smoother distribution of radiation than, say, if you were to rub your finger across the surface of your desk, your, your, your desk is rougher and less smooth than that distribution across the entire universe. Wow. Yet according to the Big Bang model, things should have been very random, and there wasn't even time for different regions to have communicated with one another at the time that light was emitted. So how should they be so much the same as... Uh, when they having a, uh, why should it be so smooth and why should they be so much the same properties from one region to another when there hasn't even been a chance for there to be uh, sort of causal influence to, to cause them to smooth out. That was a key problem of the original Big Bang model. Uh, and related to that, why don't we see the effects of a strong amount of curvature which you would typically get coming out of the Big Bang? We should observe that light 
the path of light through the universe is distorted by the fact that space is curved, but we don't observe that. What we observe is that it's as if someone smoothed the universe out and flattened the universe out so that it looks like the Euclidean universe, obeying the laws of Euclidean geometry instead of the laws of uh, motion that you'd expect in a curved universe. How did that manage to occur? That's not at all explained within the original Big Bang picture from the 20s and 30s. Yeah, and I think the first problem you mentioned is also known as the horizon problem. It's related to the horizon problem. So it, the, 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 there's several aspects to the problem. Now, the first problem is, uh, the general problem is, why is it so smooth? Right. Uh, and so that could be a, 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 an aspect of that is the fact that different regions of the universe haven't had a chance to communicate with one another at the time that the radiation was emitted. So in the expanding universe, there's a limit to how far you can... In the expanding universe with a beginning, there's a limit to how far you can see because, say, if the universe is only uh, 14 billion years old, you can only see 14 billion light years. Um, so that doesn't mean there isn't more universe out there. It just means you're limited to how much you can see, and that's what you call your horizon. We call that the horizon. It's, there's stuff beyond the horizon, but we can't see beyond it because it's... We have a limited, vision, uh, limited observation point, given the finite age of the universe. Uh, similarly, going back in time, uh, you'd have a sm uh, your horizon would be less and less because there would have been even less and less time for light to have traveled. Uh, so we can draw around any point in the universe the horizon at any given time. We can take regions on opposite sides of the sky, and we can say, how big was the horizon back when that light was emitted? Uh, there and how big was it in the other one and do they overlap was there a chance for them to communicate and in the original big bang model the answer is no there was never a chance for them to have communicate with one another so that makes the smoothness even more puzzling they've always been outside of each other's horizon the horizon adds another as another key puzzling aspect to it uh, not only how did they manage to make themselves smooth but how could they make themselves smooth when they never even had a chance to communicate when they were always outside of each other's horizon yeah, I think one of the exciting things about cosmology, and I'm going I'm to call it cosmology because I think that's maybe the best, the best description, although I'm not sure if you would call yourself a cosmologist or a physicist, but maybe both. But, but one of the most exciting things about cosmology, in my mind, is that the universe is, is your experimental uh, equipment. Or, or it's, it's, it's the, and the Big Bang is a theory to explain this empirical reality which we call the the universe and so we look out at the universe and we see as you say we see uniformity in the cosmic mic microwave background radiation or near uniformity and then we see uh, I believe there's another concept called homogeneity and um, and isotropy isotropy right yeah. mm -hmm. and then and then we had the flatness issue, which which I th which which is the curvature issue. And so so to describe it in very simple terms, we have a theory of the expansion and development of the universe. It's known as the Big Bang. And then we have that theory. Then we look out at the current cosmos, and we see uniformity, which suggests something other than randomness. And then we see flatness, which which suggests special conditions, and and that, and and so and so there and and those, as I've understood it, those are those were two big problems 
with the original Big Bang Theory. And, and I, put, I, I probably put it in non-technical words, but, but as, you, as you pointed out, when you look at the model of the Big Bang and, and you look at, well, what, what were those initial conditions? What could they have been? Well, they could have been all sorts of different initial conditions because there's nothing regulating them in the first moment. But, but those initial conditions had to be peculiar and precise in some way to wind up with a, a uniform universe and a flat universe. Right. Is that 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 to me is I think I think that's an I think that's an excellent summary. Um, and just to add one other twist to the okay. story about the smoothness or homogeneity, um, the universe is smooth and homogeneous. If you look back far enough in time or if you average over large distances, the average properties over large patches of the universe. On the other hand, it's obvious that on smaller scales, the universe is quite lumpy and right. non-uniform. Right. You know, even even where you're sitting in your room and where I'm sitting in my room, uh, it's not uniform around the room. So the, 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 what makes the puzzle even sharper is the fact that somehow it's not it's lumpy on small scales. But then those lumps somehow begin to uh, emerge into very smooth patches as you average over larger and larger scales. So that adds another twist to the story. Right. Right. And those and those uh, patches we also know as. Noah's galaxies, right? That's that's and, and large, and yeah. So we have star, we have we have uh, our room. We have planets. We have stars, galaxies. Uh, the galaxies form lumps. They come form a cluster called a cl- galaxy clusters. The clusters form yet larger lumps called superclusters. Right. Uh, so things are lumpy up to that scale, and then suddenly the lumpiness ceases. There's not yet larger scale lumps. Uh, now, as you can look on larger scales and you average over many superclusters, things begin to look smoother and smoother, and you really can't distinguish one region from the universe from the other. So it's this progression from lumpiness on, sm- on the fine-grained scale to smoothness on a coarse-grained scale that has to be incorporated in your theory to explain the, the smoothness. You don't, if you, you don't want to make something perfectly smooth because then you'd never get galaxies. Yeah. You want to make something nearly smooth and then somehow evolve the galaxies from, some, from the slight inhomogeneities, in, in from the slight non-uniformities that you'd have to also incorporate in your theory. Yeah, one way I look at this is if you were developing a computer game, one of those, um, si- uh, one of those simulated uh, games where they simulate si- uh, civilization, and there's probably one now on, on simulating creations of the universe, although I don't really know, but, but if, you're do- if you were doing this, and you had to plug in the codes, the computer codes, into the computer in order to wind up with our current universe. In other words, you have the uniformity on the large scales, you have the clumpiness, galaxies, planets, etc. on the smaller scales. I, I would bet that you'd have to put a whole lot of programming knowledge, a, a whole lot of data into that program in order to wind up with the universe that we see at night out in the heavens. And, and 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 that's that's sort of the way I look at it. That you're really trying to, you're trying to figure out. Well, how do we go from this primordial beginning to the place we we live and see it today? So the interesting thing, Philip, is that it actually doesn't go that way. Hmm. So it turns out that the conditions you need at the start and the equations that you need to solve, and by the start I mean let's say at you know when the universe was quite young. When before the before the formation of atoms, hmm. 
to go from there to the present, the equations are simple, the codes exist, the initial conditions are extraordinarily simple. So that part of the story is very well understood. But why were those conditions so simple? That's the remaining mystery. How you got to those, you know, they're simple, they're simple to describe, but why should they have been so simple? Because, you know, if you have a sudden quantum event, like a quantum decay event or something like that, any sort of quantum event, one of the things that characterizes quantum processes is is randomness. Right. unpredictability. So you should have had no predictive uh, structure to these initial conditions. They should have been quite wild initially. And that is, we know is wrong. They have to have been quite special, quite smooth, except for tiny inhomogeneities in order to agree, uh, uh, in order for the rest of the story to follow. So it's this extraordinary simplicity that one needs to, that, that, that demands a theory to explain. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And on the, on the flatness point and, the the flatness issue i i think is is equally remarkable but one of the descriptions that i've read a lot about is that i i guess most physicists have now concluded we live in a flat or nearly flat universe which means that it is neither uh curved uh, outward or or curved inward and for those uh wondering this means that if it's curved inward we, we are leading to a big crunch where the universe collapses upon itself in, an, in some kind of accelerated way. If it's an open universe, then it's going to uh, expand forever, but, but eventually the galaxies, I guess, would disperse to the four winds or wherever they're going to go. But, but, the, but the logic, but what's interesting about the flatness problem to me is that as a matter of pure logic, a, a lot of science writers are basically say, well, the universe had to be pretty close to flat at the beginning because if it wasn't, we would have already collapsed upon ourselves, or or we would be seeing some kind of this accelerated, you know, expansion, or we would have already spread out. And and you know this whole pencil point issue. I'm sure, Paul, you've see, you you've heard about the whole, uh, you know, the universe has to sit on a pencil. If it's if if, yeah. if the pencil was a little off balance, it would have tilted one way or the other by now so 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 the, the interesting thing about the flatness problem to me is that it's not, it's like a logical it's a logical issue just just going to the underpinnings of the of, of the theory so 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 now we have these these problems with the big bang and then something happened in the 1980s with alan guth who had his spectacular realization and why don't you tell a little bit about that because i know that you in fact, attended some of his early seminars, and you, I'm sure you know uh, Professor Guth and could, because you've written articles with him. But why don't, why don't you tell uh, the listeners what happened in the 80s with regard to this new inflationary model? Sure. Uh, yeah, so in fact, my uh, whole reason for uh, moving into the field of cosmology was as a result of one of the early talks that uh, Alan gave, Alan Guth gave uh, a year before his uh, paper was published, in which he uh, described his idea of the inflationary universe. It was uh, one of the most exciting and depressing talks I heard, <laughs> I've ever heard. Uh, exciting because for most of the talk, it seemed like he had solved a lot of problems. Right. But then the last few instances, the last few minutes, he explained how there was a serious flaw in the whole idea. Hmm. That, uh, and that's what brought, drew me in the field, which was to try to address this flaw. Um, 
So uh, what Alan talked about in this talk was that it's quite possible to have conditions in the first few instants after the bang that dramatically change the the stretch the history of the stretching of the universe. So normally, uh, not normally, I should say, originally in the Big Bang model, uh, it was imagined that the only thing that was created, uh, the only form of energy that existed at the beginning of the universe, was in the form of matter and radiation that we observe. And one thing we know about that matter and radiation is that uh, it gravitationally attracts itself. It's, uh, we, in fact, we used to believe that all forms of energy were gravitationally attractive, but uh, we now know differently. But certainly the matter we normally interact with and the radiation we normally uh, interact with is gravitationally self-attractive. So it tends to resist the expansion of the universe. The universe is, uh, gravity tries to make the universe stretch, but the attraction of the matter tries to draw itself together, and what you get is some um, compromise. The universe expanding, but expanding at an ever slower rate um, uh, due to this self-attraction of the energy and the matter and radiation within it. But... Um, uh, but what Alan pointed out was that uh, it's quite simple to have forms of energy motivated, for example, by ideas in fundamental physics, in particle physics, which would have the opposite gravitational effect. They would be gravitationally self-repulsive and cause the expansion of the universe to speed up rather than slow down. And if you had a sustained period in which this was the dominant form of energy in the universe, it would create a period of hyper-accelerated expansion, which he called inflation. And what this inflation would do is take any random distribution of matter and radiation you might have had at the beginning and smooth it out. In fact, it would essentially dilute it all away, leaving only behind the energy that's driving this inflation. Similar, similarly, if you had any wrinkles or curves or in space itself, if you think about stretching it very fast, taking, a, let's say, a rubbery sheet which is curved and wrinkled and stretching it very fast, it would become extraordinarily flat. So this hyper-accelerated expansion or inflation would both smooth and flatten, the two key conditions that you wanted. Um, and then, if after all that smoothing and flattening, you could imagine ending this process by converting that energy now having it decay in some way into ordinary matter and radiation, you would now have a universe full of your matter and radiation that you wanted, but now with the very special smooth and flat conditions that you couldn't explain before. So that was the exciting idea. Uh, the disappointing thing is that he proved or thought he proved that you could never have this decay process, that you could have your inflation, but you could never get the inflation to end. And so the last few minutes, he gave that part of the argument, and that was the depressing part. <laughs> so at the end of the talk, I remember just sitting in the room. I, I didn't get out of my chair, just feeling, you know, like uh, my head was like, <laughs> bursting with, here was this really exciting idea that seemed to explain a lot of important fundamental properties of the universe. It's a beautiful idea, but then somehow it fails. Uh, there must be a way to save this. And that's how I got into the field, uh, uh, and a, a, a year or so later, uh, my student, uh, after I'd moved to the University, uh, University of Pennsylvania, my student uh, Andy Albrecht and I, and independently Andre Linde in the Soviet Union, uh, in the then Soviet Union, proposed um, 
a way out that allows you to have your inflation and have it do what you wanted, decay into matter and radiation. So you could, in principle, make the scenario work. And that became, so the original idea was called old inflation. That's the one that failed. New inflation is the idea that has succeeded and is essentially the model about, on which all subsequent uh, Big Bang inflationary models are built. Now, now, can you try to, and this, this, is, this, this might be a somewhat of an unfair question, but could you try to explain in the simplest possible terms what the difference is between the old and the new inflation? Because, because you mentioned one of the problems with the original inflation uh, model was, was stopping inflation, was slowing yes. it down. So what, what is the, is, is there like an example you give your students or, or your, your, your first years or whatever to, to, help, to help them get their, their heads around this new, you know, the new inflation um, twist? I'm just... um, sure. Uh, well, I'm not sure it'll be simple, but I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. uh, so physics students have the advantage that they've taken some courses and they know about some, they know some about some processes in in solid state physics and condensed matter physics that the general public would not. And you can use those as examples. Uh, what? Uh, but let me try. Okay. So uh, so what uh, Alan tried to propose was an idea which was. Um, drawn from an analogy with a phase transition, uh, like the one that would occur, for example, if you were trying to convert water into ice. So uh, you might normally think that all you do to convert water into ice is you just lower the temperature, and then suddenly the whole thing turns solid. But if you look in detail, it's a little bit more complicated than that, more subtle than that. What will happen is, is as you're cooling the liquid, um, what will happen is uh, that you can actually cool it, if it's pure enough water, below what you think would be the freezing temperature. Hmm. Because there's an energy barrier that prevents the water from turning into ice. If you can get some of the water to cross that barrier, it'll solidify. But you're, you have to, there, you need to, it needs to, a little energy boost, if you like, to cross <laughs> the barrier to get into the ice phase. Okay. This process is known as supercooling. Uh, the idea that you can cool below the freezing temperature this way. Okay. So... Um, the idea that Alan had was, would be that there would be uh, something analogous to that happening uh, in the universe. There would be a phase transition, this time associated with the properties, um, associated with uh, fields that are predicted to exist in elementary particle physics that would permeate the universe. There would be a, a sudden, there would be a, a change in the phase of, uh, of, uh, of those fields, which would be like freezing. Uh, and there'd be an energy barrier, that, though, that would keep you in uh, the original phase for, uh, as you supercooled. And while you supercool and you're in this phase, there's an energy associated with it, which he showed would have the property that it would, it would be one of those forms of energy which has the property that is gravitationally self-repulsive and would cause the expansion of the universe to accelerate. So as long as you were supercooling, you got your acceleration. Wow. Now... In the case of water to ice, if I continue to cool the system, eventually there'll be some random fluctuation which will create a little crystallite, and maybe another crystallite in another place in the liquid, another one in another place in the liquid. And once those form, they will grow very rapidly and solidify the entire system. So can that happen in the universe? Well, that was the hang-up with Goose's idea. Uh, in this case, 
unlike the case of the water, uh, the regions that are supercooling are expanding at an extraordinary rate. And so even if you manage to form a fluctuation that would carry you over the barrier into the frozen-like phase, that region could never grow fast enough to outrun the expansion of the universe that was still supercooling. Hmm. So you, you form little crystallite regions, if you like, regions that would finish inflating, but they would never have a chance to join together to complete the phase transition. Okay. And inside them, there would not be enough matter and energy to form galaxies and stars. So you've started the process, but once you started it, the inflation was so powerful, it prevented the inflation from ending. Okay. That was the old inflationary idea. And then what uh, Andy Albrecht and um, uh, Andre Lindy and I showed was that there's other kinds of phase transitions which you don't require this energy barrier. So in this case, you could have your inflation. It would sustain itself for a finite period of time, which is what you wanted, and then it, it well, at least it seemed at the time, that it would complete. It would complete over very large regions and lead to those regions being full of matter and radiation. Uh, and so they would produce all the conditions you wanted to have in the post-inflationary universe. I see. I see. One of, one of the... The, the mysteries of cosmology to me is understanding what additional assumptions or fields or whatever values are being added to the theory one of one of the mysteries in the in my mind in the in the inflationary theory and i'm not sure if this is old new or both is this thing called the inflaton field which mm -hmm. which which is hard to uh, grasp because it looks like a typo for inflation when you <laughs> see, when you see it, but but it is. But I don't think there, I think it is inflaton field. And yeah, we we, we put normally it's supposed to remind you of electron, so oh, it's supposed okay. to be inflaton. So it normally normally be pronounced inflaton. Okay, inflaton. which is just a stand-in for a field to be named later. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Now is 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 the um, inflaton field, is this, is this a field that ex exists, that, that, that theoretically existed at the time of inflation and then disappeared? Or is that, or is that one of the problems? Um, it would be a field that would exist, would have existed, not only existed then, but it, it would come to dominate the energy of the universe. It would be the dominant form of energy of the universe during inflation. After inflation's over, when you say disappeared, uh, what, what that really means is it would convert almost all of its energy into matter and radiation, leaving such a negligible amount left in the form of this field that you wouldn't be able to detect it today. So it's not that it wouldn't be here today necessarily, but just it would have no neg it would have no important cosmological effect and w wouldn't be detectable in the laboratory. It may not be detectable in the laboratory. Okay, and so so this is this is what's important to me in very basic terms, and that is at some point in the in the mid twentieth century or so, there was the the Big Bang theory was was created. And the Big Bang theory, as Professor Steinhardt has said, uh, came to be an explanation for the expansion cooling development of the universe. Then there were problems uh, noticed in, in the original Big Bang model in explaining the, the 
fine-tuning or the or the special conditions under which we seem to live in including the homogeneity of the universe and the flat Euclidean geometry. Then Alan Guth had a spectacular realization which, it would, which is what he called it in his book called The Inflationary Big Bang and came up with a, a way, a theory to explain the smoothness and the flatness problem and then you and and your colleagues uh, developed this new inflationary model, which 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 helped uh, which helped deal with some of the problems with the original inflationary model. But the the key thing I want to say here is that if you read the modern science textbooks, and I have one uh, called the Cosmos by Alex uh, Filipinko and this other gentleman from I, I believe a California university, when you read the modern cosmology physics textbooks they will talk about the inflationary Big Bang the the old Big Bang the original Big, Big Bang seems to be part of science history right now and, and so it's important for the listener to understand that we're living in the inflationary Big Bang um, era right now in terms of what is being taught in the schools it's not really the Big Bang anymore and and, and and so now, and, and, and I, ho I, I assume that is correct because I know that uh, every time the, when, you, when you read a modern science article, and as I said, these textbooks, the inflationary Big Bang is really the leading theory. And I think you even say it in your article that it really is the textbook explanation right now. Is, is, that, is that right, um, Professor? I think that's fair, Philip. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be replaced. Right, right. But it, it, I think it's it, 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 what you said is a is a fair characterization of the present state of affairs. Uh, as, as we may talk about, there are reasons to be concerned about it. But, yeah. Uh, well, that's but what at I the like. Moment, to... That is the current that is the current state of affairs. Right. And this and this is this is this is where we move to the next step. And this is why we are. I think we're at a exciting stage of cosmology not only for this reason but for all sorts of reasons and we're not going to get into um, the God particle and dark matter and all those other things but 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 in your article in your April 11 2011 Scientific American article which I would highly recommend folks to read as a backup to this interview um, you you come out and you I think take an objective view of where where cosmology is with the inflationary Big Bang, and you point out that there's problems with the inf with with the inflationary Big Bang model, right? That that's what. Yes. And why don't why don't we why don't we now move to the next stage here, and 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 maybe you could identify some of the some of the issues problems with the inflationary Big Bang model. Okay. Well. First of all, let me mention one further success that we didn't talk about that it'll be important for because it's also the place where the trouble begins as well. Okay. So we've explained how um, uh, we got the inflation, even beginning with Goose Idea. I mentioned that Goose Idea um, failed because he couldn't figure out how to end the inflation over any sizable patch and leave any matter and radiation behind. Um, the work that was done by my colleagues and myself to show how you could end it uh, allowed us to do something else, which was then compute what exactly the conditions would be like at the very end, after you were through with this process. Since now we can say how it ends, we can actually now begin to describe in more detail what the end condition is like. 
what we discovered was that uh, if you include the effects of quantum physics, uh, you don't get a perfectly smooth and flat universe. You get a universe which is nearly smooth hmm. and flat. Because of quantum physics uh, being inherently unpredictable, uh, the way the inflaton energy, the energy in this, uh, that was driving inflation, the way it would decay would be through a quantum process which wouldn't be exactly, wouldn't occur at exactly the same, same time in one place in space compared to another. Uh, in the same way that if I have a bunch of uranium atoms, I know there's a certain half-life to those atoms, but I can't, there'll be quite a bit of variation when one nucleus decays versus another. There's an inherent unpredictability to any kind of quantum decay process, whether it be uranium atoms or decay of the inflaton energy. And at first, that seemed to be a good thing. Uh, why is it a good thing? Well, because we don't want a universe which is perfectly smooth. We said at the outset we want a certain level of lumpiness that we can eventually form galaxies from the slight non-uniformities that would be there. And when we computed, a number of us computed what the quantum effects would be on the slight advances and delays uh, in the end of inflation, when we, when we computed what that would produce in the distribution of matter and radiation, it turned out to produce a very special distribution of um, non-uniformities, a special distribution of variations in temperature and density that matched up well with what theorists had supposed might have to be there by reverse engineering, by taking the present conditions of the universe and extrapolating back and say, what, what do we need in principle? Uh, this, what was coming out of inflation seemed to match beautifully with what that reverse engineering approach was telling us. Okay. And this is one of the great, considered one of the great successes of inflation. Uh, it led to a prediction of how galaxies got seeded, from which we could then operate those computer programs we were talking about before and say, okay, given that plus gravity, can we explain the distribution of galaxies we see today? The answer is yes. Um, could we explain the radiation we see in the microwave background up to the present point? Beautifully, yes. And so it seems to, you know, if you were to ask most astrophysicists and cosmologists today, you know, not just do you believe inflation, but why, they would point beyond the smoothness and flatness to now what we know about the formation and distribution of galaxies, and, and especially from this radiation from the cosmic microwave background, as verifying the predictions of inflation. So those are extraordinary successes which one has to also keep in mind when one's judging this theory. That's good. But... But quantum physics, once you've let it in the door, and you must because we believe it's part of fundamental physics, will do what it wants. And it turns out there's something else you get for your quantum physics, which uh, in my view is potential disaster for the theory. And the problem here is that um, when we said inflation ended every place, by uh, this new inflationary idea, what we were really doing was um, taking a naive, um, I don't know, average guess, if you like, as to when it would take, how long it would take things to end um, inflation. Th looking at it more closely, if you have some sort of quantum process, like with the uranium atoms, or in the case of the inflationary energy, in, in addition to there being regions which might end inflation slightly earlier than average and slightly later than average, there's inevitably can also be regions that uh, end inflation much, much later than average. Hmm. 
So I'll call these regions slaggard regions, regions that didn't end when they were supposed to, but due to random quantum effects, they're going to stay behind, and they're going to stay behind um, not decaying. Much, well, most of the space has decayed. Well, you naively would think most of the cases is decayed. So similarly, if I had a block of uranium atoms, I can wait a long time, and maybe most of them have decayed, but some of them will not have decayed. Hmm. Okay, now, in the case of the uranium at atoms, at a certain point you don't care because there's so few that haven't decayed, you don't care about them. They, they contribute an insignificant amount to radiation. But in the case of inflation, you can't ignore those slaggard regions because they're inflating. Gravity is rewarding them by giving them huge amounts of volume. And in a matter of instance, they actually occupy more volume than the region that, if you like, was the non-slaggards, the regions that made it downhill when you thought, that made, completed the transition when you thought. So instead of the picture that you initially thought you had, where almost everywhere has ended inflation, except for maybe a few rare regions that haven't, what really happens in the matter of instance is that those rare regions occupy most of the volume, and the region that has has now become a tiny island in an otherwise inflating region dominated by these slaggards. Hmm. So in other words, inflation has, has, has had an effect, an unintended effect of, of um, amplifying these very rare fluctuations which you didn't want. You wanted the regions which were typical, but inflation has stretched those regions that you didn't want, that they are actually most of the universe. Hmm. And furthermore, that means that this process continues. Those regions uh, that were slaggard regions, which are still inflating, they're still... Just like uranium atoms, you just wait longer, they'll, they'll, try, you know, they'll, they'll eventually be some decaying. They will again attempt to decay. You'll produce another island, but it'll always be the rare regions left behind that continue to dominate most of the universe. So what you end up with is a universe which isn't everywhere like we observe, but rather only has islands of space, which we observe separated by huge expanses of inflating universe. So let me let so me. This is, this, this, is, so th this is sometimes called the multiverse. Okay. Okay. That's all. You're gonna go ahead. No, I was gonna say that that from 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 your article, I I see in in very basic terms one of the problems with the with the inflationary uh, model right now is that the inflationary model was designed to address the the problem of, of the fine-tuning of the initial conditions in the original Big Bang. That, mm -hmm. that, that, that the original Big Bang required precise initial conditions to get at the, to explain the flat universe, to explain the smoothness, and to explain the in-hole, the, the, um, the galaxies and the large-scale structure of the universe. Now, it seems as if we're saying that, that in order to get the type of inflation to fix those problems and to wind up at the universe we see, now we need a finely tuned inflationary model. Well, the, it's, um, it's worse than that. Uh, the effect I'm talking about, uh, with, when you have this eternal inflation with only islands of universe uh, which end inflation, is essentially inevitable consequence of inflation of, of, of it's any it's an unintended consequence of any now, inflation within these islands it, it, it would be okay if it were the case that all the these islands had the fine tuned conditions 
like we observe. Right. Then we would say, okay, we just live inside one of those islands. Right. And that's often what is said. Right. But the problem is, again, there's another in- unintended consequence once, you've, once the quantum effects are fully taken into account. These different slaggered regions are not all the same. So when they decay, they don't actually produce the same conditions in these islands. You get all variants of cosmological conditions inside those islands. So what you thought when you were naive before and not thinking about this eternal runaway, this eternal inflation, as we call it, what you thought was going to be the consequence of your model of producing the conditions which you thought you wanted at the beginning, you actually get islands, an infinite variety of islands, an infinite variety of possibilities, an infinite number of which might have the conditions you want, but an infinite number of which do not. Wow. wow. So, are, so, I'm so you, end up with, you end up with a, a picture which is now unpredictive in the sense that, uh, well, as Alan Guth described it, you know, if you consider all these different islands, anything can happen and will happen over time an infinite number of times so that there is nothing you can observe about your present universe that is unique and that tells you that the picture is correct. So are you saying under, under, any, under any scenario where the inflationary uh, theory is used, you're going to wind up with this problem of, of really having nothing to put your finger on? I mean, when you say an, an infinite variety, what I, and, and you use a good example in your article about the coins in the jar, what, what, what I'm, what, what I'm uh, getting from that is, is that it's, it's, it's forever unpredictable. It's forever, uh, you can't nail it down. It's, it, it, it's According to our current understanding of inflation, that's the situation. So it needs a cure or you need a different idea. Okay, so, so now... And that's what I would say. I mean, so, so I, I should say, so at this point, cosmologists begin to split in their points of view. Okay. Okay, you'd have some cosmologists who would say, ah, as long as there's some regions of the universe that look like us, I'm willing to be satisfied. I don't care if it's not predicted, as long as they're there in the universe someplace, I'm satisfied. Um, I very much disagree with that point of view. I think it's, a, it's way too low a standard. Yes. Um, because if you're going to admit that idea, then you didn't need inflation in the first place. You could have said, the Big Bang without inflation may occur, if it occurred once, it could have occurred many independent times, and one of them could be us. Okay. And I, was I satisfied with that? No, because I thought, well, but those conditions seem to be quite odd and strange and special. Right. Um, the same applies to the inflationary case. Uh, you can say it occurs, but the fact that it's not picked out as being preferred, it's, a, I think, a um, serious criticism of the model. It, it requires a cure or a replacement. You know, you know one of the, the, the principles that I you know in my own mind that that comes that i i get when i read about the inflationary model and 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 the big bang is that it's it, is that it seems to me that the more adjustments that are made in the theory the greater the difficulty in explaining the source of the adjustments or put differently the more complicated the theory the more parameters you need to adjust the harder it is to figure out why those parameters are necessary, because because I remember was it was it I was it Einstein or or uh, I think or one of the founders of modern physics who said something like you know he wants to know why the universe is the way it is 
or or you know why why the old one did it did it the way he did it and 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 then you have uh you know leon letterman uh in his book the god particle who said something like uh you know the quest of science is to put the final theory uh in a in an equation small enough to fit out a t-shirt because because the sim- simpler theories are easier to explain and and I think they're easier to prove and and that's one of my issues with with some of the theories is that is that it seems to me that we need to focus on simplifying rather than making them more complex but it's just it's just my own prejudice i guess well uh, no i i don't think it's just your prejudice Philip. i think it is the correct scientific prejudice uh, it is one of the guiding principles we use all the time. Yes. Uh, so, um, so, but at the moment, inflation is in this very peculiar state in which you'll, when you talk to different scientists about it, they'll, they'll respond, depending upon what their interest is, in very different ways. Um, so, if you ask most astronomers about the problem we just described with this eternal runaway, right. they'll say, oh yeah, I heard something about that, but I'm going to assume that theorists will make that, will solve that problem someday. Yes. Because what impresses me, they would say, is that the predictions that were developed in the early 1980s seem to agree with what we observe. Right. Now, the problem is that those predictions in the early 1980s didn't take account of this eternal runaway. Yeah. It wasn't realized that, that uh, it wasn't appreciated that inflation amplifies these rare fluctuations. So what they were calling predictions, I would say today, you really can't justify them as predictions. Yes. But the astronomers will say, I don't care about it. Then there'll be a certain community that says, like I said, okay, maybe I should be satisfied with a theory where at least there's some probability or some chance of my, you know, what we observe being there. I don't care if I can't predict it or how small it is. And there I would say, well, that's just too low a standard. Yes. And then there's some of them, like me, who would say, no, this problem has to be solved or we have to either fix it or replace. And I'm very insistent in my view that you have to fix or replace. You, the, present, the present situation cannot remain. You cannot defend this theory in its present in its. Uh, present condition yeah it's, yeah it's it seems to me that 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 time and and this would be both both experiments data observations logic critiques the time ultimately finds the best theory and 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 I'm, I'm not a big fan of of folks it's not just scientists but it's it's people in general who circle the wagons around a a um, unfinished theory <laughs> And say you know this is it. It happens. It happens probably more in non-scientific fields than any others. So 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 I was gonna I was gonna end this show by by saying that this is a hallmark of science, where and I think that uh, that that you professor are are really um, setting a great example of true science. And I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on the show, but but I thought that somebody needs to look objectively at the state of some of these theories and 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 do some self-critical analysis because you're never going to find the right theory unless you continue to criticize the old ones and refine them and i we're sort of running we're we're sort of out of time but i but i know that you have your own thoughts on where cosmology is should be going so why don't you summarize um, where where you think cosmology should be going with this? I know you've written a book and I, I, uh, on on this topic, and you have your own thoughts. But wh- but what do you think the next step is? If, if you had to decide, what what would be the next step here to deal with this inflationary Big Bang problem? 
That's a good question. Um, so to me, the critical issue it has to do with the Big Bang itself. The question we asked to talk about the beginning, uh, talk about the start of the show, which is, you know, what, was, what happened at the beginning or was there a beginning? So the problem we've gotten into with inflation began with a logic or began with an assumption that the Big Bang really is the start point for the universe. You, you can't talk about times previous to it. You can only talk about times since it. And furthermore, that it was this sudden creation. That, those combinations of assumptions, unproven assumptions, are what forced us to this fine-tuning problem and then inflation, and then inflation led to this eternal runaway. So if I were going to challenge something, I'd go back to that assumption and say, well, suppose it's not the case. Suppose the Big Bang is some sort of, I'll call it a bounce uh, or a transition between some pre-phase and some post-phase. Right. For example, it could be a contraction leading to an expansion. That's not such a radical idea. Going back to the 20s and 30s, that actually is what many of the founding fathers of the Big Bang actually had in mind, the Big Bang is being. being. It's just that we haven't explored it as much uh, in recent years. Right. If you allow that possibility, it turns out, it opens up a whole new set of ways of solving the same fine-tuning problems that inflation was designed to solve. For example, you, you discussed the horizon problem with me, the fact that different parts of the universe didn't have time to be in causal contact with one another. That was assuming the Big Bang was, t, was time equals zero. And there was no previous time. But if time existed before, there's plenty of time for things to come in causal contact. Hmm. You immediately eliminate that problem. Yes. It turns out a phase of contraction automatically flattens the universe. So if you have a long enough phase of contraction prior to the bang, prior to T, what we normally think of as the beginning, if there's a long enough phase of contraction, you already start out with a universe which is extraordinarily flat, flat enough, it can be made flat enough that it would still be, seem flat today. I see. So you start off, and then it turns out you can add other ideas to this, where um, you could explain the fluctuations in density and temperature we see so far in the microwave background. And you can even go one stage further and show that it's conceivable, possible, that this bang would not be a one-time event, but could repeat at regular intervals, say, a trillion years or so. And so that we would be, in this story, a, in the midst of a cyclic, never-ending universe, never-ending in time or space. Uh, a universe would go through cycles of, expand, uh, of creation of matter and radiation, which is what we would call the Big Bang, expansion and cooling, eventually leading to acceleration. The acceleration decays into contraction. The contraction leads to the next Big Bang, and then the process would repeat. So all this becomes possible and can be made consistent with, we observe to the same degree that the naive version of inflation is consistent with what we observe. No, no, I take so, it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was going to so say, I think these are two interesting competing ideas, and they give. What's interesting about them is that although they, they agree up to this point with everything we currently observe, they disagree about the things we are next going to try to observe. So we're at a point in the history of cosmology where the observations over the next few years could help us distinguish between these two very different possibilities for the history of the universe: Big Bang as a beginning, or Big Bang as uh, uh, as bounce and possible endless universe. So, so I take it that that, that topic uh, is, is addressed in your book uh, that you did with, with Neil Turok, The Endless Yeah, universe. so we discussed both the, the conventional, both the Big Bang inflationary theory, and we discuss uh, this alternative. 
I think what we've learned since that book was written is more about the problems of inflation. So the Scientific American article is a little bit more up-to-date in terms of the criticisms of, of inflation. Right. But the book describes both these competing ideas right. and how to distinguish them. Right. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. This, I hope that most people uh, stayed for this, this whole ride through the Big Bang and the inflationary Big Bang and beyond because because the question about how it all began is the biggest question out there and I think that what we are seeing in modern cosmology is is science at work particularly if it's practiced by those like Professor Steinhardt where where science is continuing to re-examine its theories and trying to match up the theories with what is occurring in the outside cosmos and we might add that this is contrary to other belief systems that that do, that do not engage in this radical self-criticism uh... so professor i'd like to thank you very much for your time i might i i'm going to try to convince you to come back in a in a, in a couple me weeks or months and follow up with maybe on the multiverse but but uh, i thought this was very educational i want to recommend folks just pick up um, the April 11, 2011 uh, issue of Scientific American. I'm sure it's available online in some in some form, and uh, there's references in there uh, for related topics on the inflationary Big Bang. This is the this is a big question. It's a, still unresolved, and there is still mystery that we will have to spend a lot of time trying to. Resolved. So this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Mirton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heaven at the end of science.com.